0: welcome to the coaching Minds podcast helping you overcome obstacles so you can reach and achieve more here are your hosts Ben and C joining us today is a very special guest who began his coaching career as a GA at Michigan State back in 1997 since then has coached at places like Buffalo Baylor UCF Notre Dame Stanford, Texas A&M, head coach at Nevada, and currently the associate head coach and special teams coordinator at the University of Notre Dame, as well as the author of the new book, Coaching and Teaching Generation Z, Brian Polian, Coach Polian, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here.
0: So you're obviously not new to the game of football. You've been around it your whole life. Talk about just a little bit, what was it like growing up in a football family?
1: It was um, a very special experience. I look back on it and recognize how lucky I am to uh, have some of the opportunities that we had growing up. A lot of people don't know my dad, Bill Polian, who is is in the Pro Football Hall of Fame uh, as an executive in the NFL, actually started his career as a high school coach and a teacher uh, in New York City. And then when I was born, was working in small college football As a position coach, and if you had asked him at the age of thirty, "What's your dream job?" He would have told you, "I I would like to coach at Notre Dame." And and I think one of the really neat experiences uh, about my life is that I've really uh, I've lived out my dad's dream, which is 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 very cool. But um, yeah, grew up around the game. Literally, literally, grew up in the the locker rooms of the Buffalo Bills through my high school years and. And have just been able to um, be very close to it and and enjoy it as a way of life ever since I was a kid
0: and before we get before we get into the book, talk just a little bit about some of the differences that you've seen um, in, in generation Z and just you know how how people interact with that generation, what the kids in that generation need what's what's different that stands out to you?
1: It started really in in the first couple of years at my time in Nevada. I began to take notice of, um, hey, I'm the head coach. I told you to do this. Why are we discussing this any further? You know, there was a desire to know more of why. There was a desire to have a bigger voice. Um, I noticed it in recruiting in terms of, Uh, building the relationships with the people uh, around the prospect, um, getting to know the details of their lives. It it just, it was not an overnight thing. It was gradual, but there's no doubt that in the last decade or so, the way that we teach, the way that we approach, the way that we recruit, I think all of those things have changed not so subtly here in in the last decade.
0: You know, in in the book, you talk about not realizing until you left Nevada that that you were focused on the wrong things. Can you can you touch just briefly on maybe you know as a as a younger coach or as a first time head coach? What what were some of those things that you were you were more focused on?
1: Sure, I and and it's worth mentioning. I mean, there was self reflection here that that led to part of you know the desire to write this book and some of the lessons that were in it. Um, And really what I discovered was that in my first year and a half to two years at Nevada, I was so focused on systems. I want recruiting to run this way. I want academic support to run a certain way. I um, I, I want our practices to look a certain way. And I was so focused on the systems and how things were being run according to my vision, and I lost sight of the people and I lost sight of how important it was to build bridges and build connections with our people. Now the systems are important there. There's no doubt, but the people are more important. And by the time I figured that out, um, you know, I don't want to say it was too late because we weren't four and 40. I mean, we, we appeared in two bowl games in four years and, and did some things that we're very proud of, but I wish I would have focused more on the building of the bridges because what we did was we built a really healthy culture within the program and it sustained some, some really hard times, some, some tragedies, quite honestly. And and, um, I wish I would have been less focused on how systems run when, when I got there and more on, you know, building bridges with everybody that, that came in contact with the program.
0: Sure. 2013 the high school team that I was coaching went to the state championship and played against a young man named Terry McLaurin and we walked into Lucas Oil Stadium and we were just we were not ready to play. We we peed down our leg a little bit. We weren't ready for that moment. Um, and you know afterwards we went back and reanalyzed everything. And, you know, we, we were looking at you guys' pistol stuff and we were, we were looking at the, the system that was there. Um, and, you know, this, this next part, these are, these are my words, not yours directly from the book, but it it was kind of like you were saying, even for the guys who aren't touchy feely, you know, even for the coaches who maybe they're not as much of a relationship guy, if nothing else from a strategy standpoint, you should want to develop these relationships because of the impact it has on the field. Talk, talk about that just a little bit.
1: Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, there's so much evidence of the positive influence that healthy relationships have in a young person's life, right? They're going to, they literally heal from injuries and illness better. They take coaching better. They have a better sense of belonging. Um, They have a better sense of self-worth. So it really begs the question, if you're a coach, why don't you want a team that feels better? Why don't you want a team that is more coachable? Why don't you want a team that is more self-assured and confident? So there is a direct correlation to winning. It's not just... Kumbaya, everybody sit around the campfire and lock arms. It's pragmatic. If you build better relationships within your program, you are more uh, you are more equipped to succeed on the field. And I think one of the places that we see this that people don't recognize it is in the National Football League. We an outsider might look at Bill Belichick and say. That guy's rough and gruff and 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 that may not be the most love, you know, touchy-feely guy, but I promise you, he has got personal relationships with the best players and most influential players in the locker room on that team. He's got direct lines to them. And and we 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 see it all across sports. I mean, that if you want, you know, if you want to succeed you've got to go out of your comfort zone and and work to build these connections because you're gonna have a better team because of it
0: and I, I loved your talking about the relationships I loved your explanation about you know consumer versus covenant relationships can you give just a kind of a quick overview of of what those mean kind of how you define them and and how you separate the two
1: sure the the, the concept actually, was something that I heard in a sermon at church and it was first in frame of reference to a marriage and then in frame of reference to, to God but as I listened to it I said this is this is everything that we do the consumer relationship is just that I go to Jimmy John's I order my sandwich if they get it right I'll keep going to Jimmy John's if they screw it up enough times I'm going to take my business to Subway my relationship with that institution, with Jimmy John's, is completely dependent on their ability to satisfy my needs, to perform for me. A covenant relationship is a solemn vow that, hey, I am am going to be here for you, and I'm going to serve you no matter what you provide for me, no matter what your response. So, a, a consumer relationship is is conditional love. A covenant relationship is unconditional love. And I take the stance that there are too many coaches who are in consumer relationships with their players. They will work really hard to build connections to the players that perform the best on the field because that builds up their reputation, their ego, their ability to move on and up in the profession. Um, I believe that coaching, teaching, um, mentorship, all of these things, these are covenant relationships. We need to love them all the same. We need to serve them all the same, no matter what they provide for us on the field. Um, And I've mentioned the word love a couple of times, and occasionally I will get a side eye look like that that's just too cliche. People think about love in the wrong context. Love does not have to be romantic. Love does not have to be a state of emotional being as though I am in love with my wife every day of every week. That's not the case. And it's not the case. She doesn't feel that way about me every moment of every day. Right, But I take the, I, you know, love is service. When, when we say, I'm going to give you my best to help you in any way that I can, no matter what you're feeling, no matter how your day's going, no matter what your production, that is love. And when you think of love in that context, it speaks directly to what we do as coaches and teachers.
0: And I love that in the book, you had practical ways that coaches could do that, that they could show, Hey, you're important to me. Having a relationship with you is important to me. What are some, you know, the, the book is full of them, but can you maybe just pick out your top one or two and just give the listeners out there who are coaches something they can do at their next practice?
1: Well, it's, just, first of all, when you sacrifice time, that is the ultimate expression of love because time is our most precious commodity and, and when we dedicate that to somebody else, we are telling them that you are important. Um, there are so many opportunities that I believe that we miss. You know, you think about the beginning of a practice when a team's running and stretching and somebody, a coach is in the back just twirling his whistle or talking to, to one, of his, one of his peers, one of his fellow coaches. That's an opportunity to walk up and down those stretch lines and just touch a guy in the helmet, dap him up say, Hey man, how you doing? How's your day? How's class going? How's your mom? And there's a great example here. Tommy Reese, our offensive coordinator, obviously he deals with the offensive side of the ball all day long. He goes out of his way during stretch to go interact with defensive players with guys. He normally wouldn't get any interaction with. He's going to make sure that he's building relationships. We talk about how impactful it is to share a meal. I mean, we, we, at my house, my wife does pit and peak with our two children you know, what was your pit? What was your peak? What was the best part of the day? What was the worst part of the day? And you sit with a guy and just tell me what's the best thing that happened to you this week and 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 learn what kind of uh, a conversation can follow that. Um, wh- one of the things that we talk about is I used to view the locker room as a sacred space for the players, that the coaches did not belong in there. I don't believe that anymore. I go into the locker room a half an hour before every special teams meeting. I just want to hang out. We have a Nerf hoop up in there. We're going to shoot buckets. We're going to talk. We're going to, you know, you, what you can learn and the personalities that you can observe and, and who talks to who. And um, it's, it's really, it's impactful and it's fun. And, and there, those are ways that are very simple that we can go out of our way to find extra, t- I call them touches. We can get extra touches on our kids and, and those things build up. It's currency. We're, we're building up currency.
0: And I, I love that you brought up time. And that was the very first one, you know, in the book, it says the single most important thing we can do for another person is make time for them. And you've been a position coach and you've been a special teams coordinator and you've been a head coach. And as your role changes so does the number of players that you're responsible for. Yeah. So, you know, if I'm, if I'm worried about developing relationships with just the guys in the quarterback room, well, that's a little bit easier than I'm the special teams coordinator and I got guys from every single position group that are going to be on the field at some point. Add to that. Now I'm the head coach and now I've got a, you know, I'm now involved in a whole bunch more aspects off of the field also. So as that demand for the number of people that you have to make time for grows. How do you, how do you kind of manage that and still be dad and husband at home?
1: Oh boy. That's the ultimate challenge. Right. And, and it's, um, we just have to strike. There is no balance by the way. And anybody that says there's a work-life balance, anybody, and I'm not talking specifically about coaching or football, I think anybody that achieves at a really high level professionally understands that there's no balance; that sacrifices are made. Um, I like to think that I am the best dad I can absolutely be. Uh, I try to be the best husband that I can be. I could be a better golfer. I could be in better shape. You know, you know, I could probably be a better friend to some of the buddies. But you know, sacrifices are are made at times, and. I'm not going to sacrifice my wife and my children, but other things have to be sacrificed in the And then we have to be creative. Um, I, I think Generation Z is so uh, technologically advanced and so used to electronic communication that I can put my kids to bed, who are who are eight and twelve right now, and and you know they're down by nine o'clock, and still text a half a dozen guys and say hey, love what you did today. Or, hey, uh, I sent out a couple messages yesterday of guys that aren't, I don't have position group per se, that we got positive academic feedback from professors. Something as simple as, hey, we got great feedback on you today. Really proud of you. And you can send those out at 10 at night and it's not going to be a face-to-face conversation, yeah. but the kid's going to see the text and it's gonna it's going to be meaningful. So it's a constant battle of, of trying to do the best you can head coaches got to go out of their way. They gotta, we're not going to know every detail of every guy on the team, but something as simple as I know where he's from, or I know the meaning of that tattoo on his arm. Uh, you know, those, those simple things, uh, I think, again, they add up and, and the players appreciate that
0: toward the end of the book. You t- you talked about giving and receiving feedback and we actually got a question sent to us on social media last week from a coach said hey we have a player who we've been pushing to hold his teammates more accountable and he's starting to step up but at times he's kind of a borderline jerk to people how how would you coach kind of help direct either a player who isn't given feedback the right way, or, you know, maybe even just a coach who likes to yell and scream, who's not given feedback the right way? How, how would you kind of direct them or help them out?
1: Well, I think to answer the first question, there too many people confuse leadership with volume and confrontation. You know, if there, there's an art form to pulling a guy aside and saying, Hey, listen, this is not to our standard and here's why. I mean, who among us wants to be embarrassed in front of our peers? Now, there are some guys you can challenge in front of their peers and they will react positively. There are a lot of guys that those conversations need to occur one on one. And I think we challenge young people to step up and lead, but we don't give them the tools to become good leaders. We don't teach them how to become good leaders. and. That can be anywhere from a whole semester college course to a, Hey, let's sit down for a half an hour here as the head coach with who I think are the most influential people on the team. And let's talk about the right way and wrong way to handle these things, because you got to know your audience. You got to know who you're dealing with. Um, My experience has been, um, and, and I've, I used to be a yeller and a screamer. I openly admit that. And I, I talk about that in the book. I, I have actually changed. Uh, if I'm going to raise my voice on the practice field, it's for one of two reasons. I really liked what I saw and I'm celebrating it. Or I have an issue with the effort. If it's a mistake, and it's not a boneheaded mistake, but a mistake, I'm actually, I lower my voice to make those corrections because I want them to have to strain to hear me. And in the meeting room, I'm always going to lower my voice and make sure I'm as calm as can be when we're making corrections. Because I don't want the message to get lost in how it's delivered. You may have an unbelievably salient coaching point that will help the player get better. But if you're screaming like a lunatic and they don't want to deal with that, they're never going to hear the coaching point. So there, there's a time and a place, right? And we used to tell players 10 years ago, hey man, just li- listen to the message and not how it's delivered. Like, don't be sensitive. Right. And there's some truth to that. We still have to remind them, like, don't be sensitive here. But at the same time, we've got to adjust as well. Yeah. Because if we just keep going the way we're going, it's not going to work. And there and there, there's a whole series of bullet points. That, that I share that I think are really important about feedback. Like I think feedback needs to be immediate. Too many coaches miss the teachable moment. Like, all right, I'm going to fix this a little bit later. Then we forget about it. And then the mistake repeats itself. The most, the most applicable time to, to make the correction is if time allows immediately, a mistake is not like, is not like wine. It doesn't get better with age. It's, It's like milk. It gets sour. It gets worse. So too many guys miss the teaching moment. Too many guys don't have actionable feedback. Hey, catch the ball with your, you know, catch the ball. Like what was actionable about that? All right. Hey, keep the ball away from your body. Catch it with your hands. If it's above your waist, I want your thumbs together. If it's below your waist, pinkies together. That's actionable. You're, you're, you're helping the guy. Hey man, catch the ball. I mean, that, that's not coaching. Like my, my wife could yell that from the stands. So there's just, I, I think giving feedback is an art form. There's a way to do it right. And there are ways, and there are, there are tips and little tricks that you can use in certain moments that'll make a coach better at it.
0: The book is fantastic. If you guys haven't had a chance to check it out yet, uh, you can check out the show notes. We've got a link so that you can buy it again. It's called Coaching and Teaching Generation Z. Coach, as we start to wrap up here, got two last questions that we always ask all our guests. The first one, what advice would you have for a younger coach that's just starting out?
1: Bloom where you're planted. There are too many guys that want to get up the professional ladder as fast as possible. Um, Focus too much on network, on reputation, on uh, image, as opposed to simply being great at what their head coach asked them to do. And I will, I want to make one additional point, because that's a great question. Um, My father taught me when I started in this profession that good special teams coaches and good offensive line coaches always have jobs. Like, those guys are hard to find. So I made the decision very early in my career, I'm going to embrace the kicking game. And when I was trying to get jobs in my late 20s, early 30s, what was it that separated me from all the other guys applying for the job that looked just like me or or had similar experience? It was my ability to coach in the special teams. And, and that I have no doubt. I know for a fact that that helped propel me through the profession.
0: Knowing what you know now, what advice would you have given a younger version of yourself? Who's still playing the game,
1: be taller, <laughs> <laughs> try to be a little faster. Um, boy, I would guess enjoy every second of it because I, I, uh, I miss it so much. And it, it was not, it was not the physicality, you know, it wasn't the bumps and the bruises and the surgeries. Um, it was the togetherness. It was the being a part of something greater than myself, the team, the relationships. Uh, those were the things that, that I missed the most. It's funny you asked that question. I played at John Carroll University a Division Three school in uh, uh, eastern suburb of Ohio with some really big name NFL guys, but um, just spent last weekend in Cleveland with a bunch of my teammates, 25 years later, those bonds are so strong that, you know, we we'll, we're, are going and renting out a room at a restaurant and all the couples are together. And um, you know, those bonds are, are so special. Those relationships, that time is so special. I don't think anybody should ever take that for granted. And, and, Quite honestly, it's one of the reasons I got into coaching because it's the closest I could get to, to replicating that.
0: Yep, Coach Polian, thank you so much for your time today. It was great talking with you. We really appreciate it.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Until next time, make your plan and put it to work.